Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I am Sean KB. And I'm AP Randy. Wait, what? I'm, you can call me Randy today because we have very special guests. Uh, Andy Battle is here. Hello. And um, Andy's don't like to be around one another. And Andy Battle and I are, are good friends. So we've overcome this by um, calling each other Randy, uh, just pretending that our names aren't Andy. But today, mm. since he's our, our guest and we're very excited to have him, I will uh, bend the knee and be Randy today. That's very nice of you, Randy. Mm -hmm. yes, thank you. I've finally gotten the upper hand in this fragile truce. <laughs> well, it's uh, funny because, you know, we don't really hold anything back on the Antifada, and the mainstream media doesn't really like to talk about Andy on Andy violence. Um, you know, there's this liberal conception that it's like economic or whatever, but I think it's a cultural thing, and I don't know where the leaders of the I don't know, Andy, you know, the, the, the leader of the Andy movement. It's uh, Andy Richter, unfortunately. Okay, I don't know where <laughs> Andy, take him down. I don't know where Andy Richter is to stand up and, uh, you know, denounce this Andy on Andy violence within the community because it's just not being addressed. It's a cultural thing and it needs to be addressed. So I appreciate that you guys have done this, but in the future, I think we have to have an episode on... Uh, yeah, you just wouldn't understand, man. It's just, it's not for you to talk about, really. It's an Andy thing. Yeah. It's affected my life in ways I can't explain. <laughs> Uh, Andy standpoint epistemology 101. This is something for us to work out within the community, so just, just well, drop it. Well, yeah, yeah. but it does affect the rest of the country and the world, so I mean... Look, we're not going to resolve this today, all okay, right. guys? So let me just sidebar this discussion and continue introducing our show. Is that all right? Is yeah. that all right with everyone? Yeah. Yeah. Maybe in 100 years. That's fine. Yeah, yeah. The, the time... This is not the time. Um, so yes, uh, as, as Randy just stated, we have... Uh, uh, we actually have two guests today. Um, the first person we're going to talk to is Sham Khanna, editor-in-chief of Commune magazine. We're going to talk to him first. And then we're going to talk to Andy Battle, who is a doctoral student in U.S. history at City University of New York, as well as a contributor to Commune magazine. So uh, I would like to kick this off by asking a question that I ask all our guests here at the Antifada, as well as all of ourselves. And that question is, guys, how pure is your hate today? Uh, Andy, do you want to start first? Or uh, Sham? I don't know. It's a tough one, I know. But uh, give, know. Give, a, give a crack at it. My hate is probably slightly less pure than it was 10 years ago, but still purer than 99.5% of the American population. It's probably accurate. I got to say, um, I kind of got a bone to pick today. Um, oh, do you have some hatred that you want to uh, express God, on the yeah. air? Uh, the other day, I was, start, I was getting some tweets. Because people, anytime, like uh, any publication that I've ever written for does something bad, people tweet at me like I have any control over that. Well, as a in all fairness, they also tweet at you as though you are the uh, elected leader of Antifa. That is so true. Twitter yeah. is a fucked up place. Yeah, but uh, people were tweeting at me like, what the fuck, Jamie? Say You gotta do something. T talk to your people at The Guardian. They just published this garbage fucking op-ed that's like shot through with turf bullshit. And I was like... At first, I was like, oh, it's probably just an op-ed. Like, they let a turf write an op-ed. Hey, hey, Jamie, for our listeners, can you tell uh, them perhaps what a turf is besides uh, yes. soil? So, turf is spelled T-E-R-F, and it is an acronym for Trans Exclusionary Radical Feminist, 
which is funny to me because if you're excluding trans people, I don't think your feminism is all that radical. Mm. But there are different definitions of radical feminism, I suppose. So anyway, I go to the Guardian. I'm like, oh, what fucking turf did they let write for them this time? No, there's no byline. It's just the Guardian view. So which it's is the editorial board it's of the, the it's the fucking editorial board. Ugh. This is like an official editorial, which is not good. They don't even have Barry Weiss on that edit- editorial board. I know, right? Bad decisions. Like who who are these people? Like I know my editor. I don't think that she would be part of something like this. They're but. they're a bunch of lads from Madchester. Ugh. They're all fucking all that Molly in the eighties just really blew their brains out. They became turfs, <sighs> I guess. I don't know. It says the Guardian view on the Gender Recognition Act where rights collide and the top line goes, it should be possible to advance trans equality without harming the interests of women. But a toxic debate has made it harder. And who do you think they mean by women in there? Mm. Who do you think they mean? Do you think they mean trans women, too? Or do you think they mean only cisgender biological women? Uh, it depends uh, how many PragerU videos they've watched. I don't know. Oh, my God. So, like, let me just read a little bit of this. Um, <sighs> UK law acknowledges circumstances where there's a conflict of interest between trans women and other women. The Equality Act allows for single-sex services to exclude trans people where this is, quote, a proportionate means of meeting a legitimate aim, such as in rape support services. Right? So, right there... Uh, it allows single-sex services to exclude trans women if this is a portion. Uh, it, it just doesn't make any sense. Like, well, do the, trans women not need rape support services? There has to be a good reason because The Guardian is such a great liberal uh, newspaper. Yeah, right. So it continues. While some trans activists have argued for these exemptions to be abolished, some feminists believe they should be strengthened. There, again, you have a false dichotomy set up between, tra- between trans activists and feminists. Um the Guardian, the Guardian supports trans equality and believes reform of the Gender Recognition Act could form part of this. There's, there's just too much here, even. Get Here's mad. a fun thing. Any new law must not give violent or controlling male prisoners a new opportunity to dominate women by changing gender and transferring to a female prison. That is completely a right-wing talking point. Where the fuck are they getting this shit from, Guardian? What the fuck? Yeah, yeah, exactly. I don't fucking know. It's like trans people are just uh, men who want to go through all these convoluted processes, medical ones, legal ones, so that they can, I don't know, like go into a women's restroom. Like, get the fuck. There is no evidence whatsoever outside of like wacky 80s movies that this is a thing that uh, actual people do. And this is a real problem. Like men deciding pretending to be women it's a moral pretending dress up like women in order to gain access to female only spaces so they can like look at them in the locker room or whatever it's a classic moral panic and it's used in very disgusting and disingenuous ways and to show this exactly what this you know points to and what the repercussions of this are we're recording on a sunday and it just came out today in the times that trump is going to roll back even the conception the definition of somebody as uh transgendered um this it's absolutely horrific um you know there's a lot of things we could say about the obama administration and we are not obama fans per se but they uh did um a good amount of work in kind of uh loosening the conception of you know what sex is and gender is and allowing transgendered people a lot more rights than they had before well not under trump um in this article called oh my god hold on 
This article is called Trump Administration Eyes Defining Transgender Out of Existence. And uh, essentially what it would mean is that um, gender will be determined, quote, on a biological basis that is clear, grounded in science, objective, and administratable. The article goes on, the agency's proposed definition would define sex as either male or female, unchangeable, and determined by the genitals that a person is born with, according to a draft reviewed by the Times. Any dispute about one's sex would have to be clarified using genetic testing. That is some dystopian fucked up shit. Yeah. And that is the consequence of folks like The Guardian caping for these sort of right wing uh, ideas. Yeah. And the Trump administration isn't doing that for feminism, by the way. Right. Because exactly. they don't give a fuck about cisgender women or trans women. OK, exactly. So sorry to start the show off on such a serious note, but uh, it just really got my hate right up to 10 when I saw it. Uh, I'm right there with you. Yeah. Well, we don't have to worry about The Guardian anymore because... Uh, there's a new socialist paper in town, and it just launched uh, this week, and they have a Kickstarter, and we have uh, an editor from Commune, or the editor. The or editor. The editor-in-chief. Sham Khanna. What's up? Hey, it's really nice to be here. So, uh, can you explain a little bit about what Commune is exactly, um, and what you want it to be? Yeah, so it's a new um, print and online journal that's going to be a quarterly um, and I guess the the wager is that over the past decade, we've seen these waves over and over again of um, kind of like large social movements and social struggles um, in that it seems like the basic intuitions that people act on when there's these struggles happening point towards, um, it seem, seem to indicate that um, our ideas as kind of revolutionaries or communists seem to be in everyone's heads. But as those movements end, uh, we end up kind of like relegated back to these kind of like small milieus of kind of like countercultural scenes or really esoteric theoretical journals. And on the other hand, in the past decade, kind of corresponding with these waves of social movements, we've seen all these new radical left publications, but there seems to be a kind of gap between the intuitions of the movements and then the kind of positions of, or orientations of editorial boards. Um, either by trying to cram the, either their political journals that try to cram their perspectives of movements into kind of like already figured out categories mm -hmm. that tend to either kind of like be oriented towards elections or a kind of like a, an anarchism that seems to think that there's just one set of tactics you do all the time. Mm -hmm. Or on the other hand, they approach the novel things about our situation in a novel way, but only through the kind of guise of cultural inquiry. Um, so we want to be a political journal that takes serious the intuitions that we see um, in the way everyday people act without trying to kind of cram a dogmatic set of positions on top of it. That all sounds really, really exciting. So people like to uh, place other people in boxes politically. Mm -hmm. uh, would you say that there's a name for the kind of political tendency or tendencies that you're trying to represent here in the commune? Um, I would say that we're trying to be a multi-tenancy project with a fairly big tent of um, trying to kind of like reflect the most radical currents that we see in social movements. Um, and we're, we're broadly interested in publishing anything. We, we want to reflect the most radical currents that we see in social movements um, and frame things as a kind of conversation or as a debate. Um, we think that as the kind of like 
center of American politics is imploding, there's all these new positions on the table that are kind of emerging in the mainstream. And I think partly our role is to kind of like frame a conversation that allow those positions to be clarified. But on the other hand, like articulate a center of gravity, which to us would be a communist politics that thinks that the only pragmatic solution on the table right now is revolution. Hell yeah. I like it that you don't tie yourselves down to any particular tendency of the past because like we've talked about before on this show, these things are useful shorthand, um, but they're not fully accurate to describe um, certain political formations that are still imminent, right? right? And still forming. And also like, I think some people might be turned off if you were to call it like, I don't know, left com mag or whatever, who really (laughs) might actually get something out of it. I, I mean, I think a lot of us are obviously draw on the kind of left communist tradition, but I think it'd be insane to think that a set of political positions that made sense in 1920 Germany would still make sense in a literal way in 2018 America. I resent that, but uh, (laughs) moving on. I think that's really interesting, and you kind of put a marker down just there, and it was something I believe is often the case, which is that it's the movements themselves at any particular moment in time, you know, the ways they express themselves and the ideas that come out of them that, you know, basically creates a new sort of uh, paradigm, you know, that we, Mm. that we work in. So it's not, you know, some vanguard coming from the outside necessarily, but these are actually self-generated conceptions and practices within movements that need to be taken seriously because they're confronting objective conditions on the ground. Yeah. And they'll have to find some kind of clarity whether they want to or not. Right. So in terms of the, the political ed or media project that you're doing. Um, I was really excited to see a magazine expressing some of these ideas in a very readable way, Mm. or at least a way I found readable. Um, I especially liked um, Andy's article where he managed to describe some like very Marxist concepts without using a ton of jargon. Um, And I think that's really valuable. So what niche are you trying to fill in the media landscape and who is this magazine for? Um, Yeah, I I think our role is partly just to articulate um, a further left perspective than what's on the table. Partly with our sense being that there's all these really dynamic and interesting um, theoretical journals on the table like Viewpoint or like EndNotes and that kind of role of like kind of like abstract theoretical clarification is really important but our wager is that a lot of the ideas developed there seem to be the most true ones about the moment that we live in and would resonate really f- further if kind of articulated in a more basic and mm. accessible way. Um, and so I, I think that, you know, our our publication is broadly aimed towards anyone kind of dissatisfied with the moment that we're living in, but with partly a wager that there's a lot of people like us that kind of came of age right around the time of the economic crisis Um, And kind of like had this experience of like, oh, all of the kind of expectations I had for my life by going through college or going through this or that are now no longer possible. And now I'm working like a stupid service job all the time. And in the free time, I try to do these projects I really care about. But, you know, I it's hard to imagine a future of doing them. And I think so there's a basic intuition there that like the economy has imposed all these things on us that seem totally unnecessary. And if it wasn't for having to work a stupid job to pay rent, uh, we would all be doing these amazing things. And I think 
that basic intuition is could be the basis of both all these struggles and of a potential politics that we're trying to articulate. With the the basic wager being the same way in which democratic socialism has become this visible national poll that like the New York Times is discussing, and everyone kind of basically knows what do the democratic socialists want. We think that within the next two years, communism and a kind of revolutionary position could be this thing that you know there's polls about in the New York Times. So what you're basically saying is it's like Jacobin, but for bad faith ultra left records. <laughs> no. Uh. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> that's that's excellent. Um, one thing you said that really jumped out at me was, you know, the, these people that came of age, you know, uh, at the time of the crisis and the expectations that they had, you know, about what their life prospects would be mm-hmm. were kind of dashed on those shoals. But um, speaking of someone a little older, folks who were um, already on the left, on the radical left, also had these kind of expectations that there would be the, uh, A to B correlation between uh, capitalist crisis, uh, as we saw in 2008, 2009, mm-hmm. and either the death of neoliberalism and or the creation of, you know, uh, the recreation, I should say, of old forms of struggle, right? So um, I think that the journal sounds really fascinating. The magazine sounds really fascinating because um, it doesn't take that for granted. It said that this thing that happened 10 years ago, the reaction to it is not what we expected it to be as mm-hmm. leftists, as Marxists, as anarchists. Um, yeah, I think that's true. But they're also, I think, you can't discount the way in which that crisis produced this kind of like decades long or decade long cycle of struggle that maybe starts with the Arab Spring and it's kind of discontinuous. But there's a clear break between the what you know self activity looked like before and after 2008. 100. Yeah. percent um, And I think we can make some wagers that you know. Um, even though this process is discontinuous, that we're going to keep seeing these huge waves of mass direct action over and over again. And that seems to point towards the possibility of revolution in our lifetime, maybe sooner than we'd expect. Um, Hell yeah. I'll drink to that. (laughs) So what, uh, because I I know you just launched this week and it seems to be going pretty well. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I mean, I, I think... We had thought that there was a desire for a thing like this, but the response has totally blown us away. Um, We put up a Kickstarter asking for $20,000 and raised that within 48 hours. Nice. We've got over 300 print subscribers right now. Um, But, I mean, the hope is that, you know, in the next month we raise enough money um, to cover uh, a year of printing costs and paying our writers and to pay for building the website, which is around a little bit more than 50K. And then I think just we want to slowly build to the point that we're a kind of institutional voice on the left that's as visible as something like Jacobin. Or current nice. affairs or something. And like I got to ask, yeah. cool. because we like to live our principles here at the Antifada, and I hope you do too. What is the structure of this business? Is it a worker-owned cooperative or what's going on there? We want legalese. We want the jargon. Come on. What tax code are you under? Um, we, we are, <laughs> I don't actually really want to talk about taxes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How do you organize yourself? <laughs> like, I don't want to put you on the spot, but are you, are you a capitalist? Are you a enterprise? boss? Are you, are you a an boss? exploiter? Did you exploit Andy, the guy sitting right don't next lie. to you? <laughs> <laughs> Not yet since I haven't been paid. <laughs> oh shit. Total so that, exploitation. You know, <laughs> the rate wow. of exploitation is <laughs> infinity. <laughs> uh, I, I mean, right now we are. Uh, Everyone that isn't in the collective is getting paid for the work that they're doing. So all the artists, the web designers and developers and the writers are all getting paid. 
you know, obviously not as much as they deserve, but as much as a, a pretty meager project can afford to right now. And the more we grow, the higher our rates are going to be. Um, right now, no one that actually is has a decision-making role in the project is making anything off of it. Um, we're a nonprofit. Over time, we'd love to get to the point that at least a couple of us can get like a really part-time stipend. Um, and you know, over a couple years, we'd love to be able to just like live as professional revolutionaries and yeah. just do this. But I guess the other part of the question is we're we're making a wager that by having it run a little bit more with a formal structure than a lot of the anarchist kind of collective projects that I'm used to being a part of will allow us to be a little bit more kind of effective and uh, efficient, which I think is what you need to be able to put out a quarterly. But that's like a wager. We could be wrong. I might be biting my words in a couple months. Well, I mean, time will tell. But uh, that Kickstarter money is impressive. Uh, shout out to any comrades out there who threw money at that and the subscriptions as well. And uh, where can people find you online and elsewhere? Um, we're online right now at uh, communemag.com. Um, and our you know, print journal should be in bookstores in a little over a month. That's incredible. Cool. We'll put that in the show notes for sure. For our listeners' sake, what are some topics that this magazine covers and what are some interesting articles that you have either published or have in the works? Yeah, yeah. I mean, um, one of the kind of themes running through the first issue is looking at the kind of like dystopia and utopia. Um, our, you know, our comrade Kim Stanley Robinson has a piece we're going to be coming out with Kim in a couple of weeks. Stanley oh, hell Robinson. yeah. You said my three favorite words. That's uh, incredible. Uh, Sci-fi author, is it about uh, leftist, great guy. How we're going to have class struggle in space. It's how the Mars is going to be communist. Yeah, he wrote the, the, he, he wrote, wrote three books on that already. That. <laughs> I'm on the third one right now. That is so cool. Any, so, anyone who hasn't read Kim Stanley Robinson's uh, Mars trilogy, please do, comrades. Oh, so it is wonderful, wonderful. So he has this piece kind of argue, looking at why it seems so much of contemporary fiction and pop culture is themed around dystopia and all the obvious reasons for that. But then he kind of pulls this move where he's like, actually, doing dystopian fiction is cowardly. And the bold move that we need right now is people trying to come up with utopian visions. Um, and around a similar theme, um, our managing editor, Jasper Burns, has this piece. Shout out to Jasper. What's up, dude? Shout out to Jasper. <laughs> Friend um, of the show. Looking at Ursula Le Guin and her attempts to kind of put forward anarchist or communist utopias in this interesting way where they're limited but seem realistic. And he's also kind of like, what we need right now is to think about what is the society that we want what could communism look like? And um, maybe with a wager that by able to actually articulate the things that we could imagine being desirable could allow us to kind of build a more convincing political pull. Oh, I mean, you, yeah. you guys can't see it at home, but uh, Sham just hit my back walls with all that talk of mm -hmm. uh, oof, leftist. Hitting the back walls of our politics right now. Stuff. So I'm going to have to take a break for a little bit and come back. I got to say... <laughs> Oh my. <laughs> I gotta say, um, I read The Dispossessed when I was first dating Sean, I believe. He was like, here's a cool book that you should read. It was propaganda. I was totally trying to get <laughs> and it on our side. Yeah, it, it worked. Like, <laughs> Thanks, Ursula. More so than any kind of dense theory that I probably would have put down immediately because it was boring. This was The Dispossessed was such a good introduction to some of these ideas because... Like we were talking about before, it doesn't use jargon. These ideas don't have to be 
just complicated and only for people who've gone to grad school, you know, like that's not how you're going to win. It was such a good envisioning of sort of an anarcho-syndicalist planet society. Um, it was not a dystopia. It was not a utopia, no. although some people would call it utopian. And mm. in some ways it is. It was just like a very realistic imagining of what this society would look like from day to day. What would some of the problems be? What would some of the good things be? And it's it's all wrapped up in a really good sci-fi story. So that's very exciting to me that she's going to appear in this magazine. I mean, not uh, not right for it. She's dead, but, you know, be written about. <laughs> you had plans to interview her and then she passed away, right? Yeah. Oh, my God. I pitched. I actually pitched an interview to Broadly with Ursula Le Guin wow. and I wrote to her people and they never got back to me. And I think she must have been sick yeah. already at this point in time because she died not that long after and it was very sad but i am very glad that we had her for as long as we did and that she got to do as much as she did during her life and then i think there was another article that um i liked andy liked and i think jamie you especially liked right um i really liked this piece by madeline lane mckinley called me too from below uh because i mean i was thinking of writing sort of a similar thing a year out from the whole hashtag me too movement or whatever you want to call it but like she said it at least as well as i could have probably better um because there's been some controversy on the left even on the left right about what this whole hashtag me too thing is all about if there's anything good about it there have been a lot of left critiques saying this is just like a bourgeois liberal feminist thing that should not be respected in any way and should not even be considered a movement. Uh, and that, like, there are people who really want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. And I've maintained throughout that, at best, it is a populist movement. It is a populist movement by normal people, mostly women, but not all, who are making a rather universal demand, which is, we do not want to be sexually harassed or assaulted we don't want to have to do the unpaid labor anymore of constantly protecting ourselves against that right because that's a ton of extra work that women have to do that they don't get paid for whether you're at work or you know in the sphere of social reproduction or whatever and it seems a little bit shitty to me that there are some leftists who want to write the whole thing off it, it just seems it seems a little um i don't know it seems a bit hypocritical well i re what i really liked about this piece was it manages to critique the more uh, liberal or bourgeois elements of the Me Too movement without throwing out the stuff that is good about it and without denying its radical potential because any mass popular movement like this does have radical potential when there are millions of people making demands, wouldn't you say? I'd say so. I think you, you summed it up way better than I could. Um, oh, just one more quick reflection is I think Me Too is going to be one of the things that we're not really going to know the real impact it's had on us culturally and politically until, you know, 10 or 20 years from now, looking back, the same that you could say about second wave feminism or any movement of that character. <laughs> but Madeline edits this incredible feminist journal called Blindfield that I, I'd really recommend everyone check out if you want more material like that. So she talks about some of the disputes that are happening among the left, among organizers, and among feminists 
Uh, she says, I am not alone in experiencing multiple heartbreaks this year, discovering on more than a few instances that feminists who'd modeled for me a critique of sexual violence were willing to make so many exceptions to their feminist practice in order to maintain social capital and access to institutional power. I've discovered that the imperative to lean in, to grin and bear it, runs deep among even its harshest critics. And that's like earlier in the piece, she sets it up in opposition to lean in because lean in feminism is all about you right it's a self-help thing you're not changing the system you're changing yourself so it's about bending over backwards to try to deal with all the fucked up and shitty parts of work which you know could include stuff like sexual harassment and me too is saying no we're not gonna the, the system needs to change and maybe not all of the people involved in me too understand yet that the entire system needs to change and not just you know the parts that deal with gendered oppression but it's a start and then she says I keep hearing about how confusing everything is in the era of Me Too, how messy things have become, as if it all came out of nowhere, like some kind of magic. But so much of what has been brought to the surface isn't, in fact, so incomprehensible. So much of it is actually quite obvious. Where there is power, there is abuse. At its best, we get from this moment a map of how power works. Let's do something with it. Dead ass. Yeah, and I th also thought it was really important that a lot of the article spends time talking about the prevalence of rape and sexual assault amongst uh, immigrant workers, mm. which is, you know, not typically thought of being connected to Me Too because a lot of the stories that we hear are about people working in media. They're Hollywood uh, actresses. Yeah. That's where it started, um, right? But uh, this article makes some really stunning claims about how commonplace it is to be raped if you're an undocumented mm -hmm. woman. A and it really shows um, the, the way that power intersects with this stuff. Right. Because oftentimes it's a matter of degrees. Like maybe you work at a magazine, your boss might make inappropriate comments to you. Maybe, I don't know, just just be gross and creepy. And that's a certain level of uh, unequal power. And then you look at it in these communities of migrant workers and where these women have no power whatsoever. And the abuse is much worse. And is that because the kinds of men who work as overseers in these mm. jobs are like somehow way, way worse people than the kinds mm. of men who work as bosses in media? No, I don't think so. It's the, it's the power imbalance that's the real problem there. Well, and I think the other really important point that it makes is that uh, sexual violence and uh, abuse is not a bug of these kinds of jobs. It's a feature. Mm. It is an integral part of the exploitation that occurs in these fields. And like, I, I always want to broaden it out too because even if your boss isn't allowed to harass you in a gendered way, uh, your boss is allowed to be an asshole to you in all sorts of other ways. In fact, that's kind of his job to facilitate your exploitation, right? Along class lines, because if you were not part of the working class, you would not be doing that job in the first place. So it seems like potential to broaden it out from saying, oh, your job shouldn't be able to oppress you along gendered lines to saying your job shouldn't e be able to oppress you at all. An another great example of the pieces in the first issue is Andy Battle's article, The Subways Belong to Us, which combines a Dickensian depiction of misery of commuting in New York uh, with personal anecdote and the historical roots of, the, of crisis and austerity regime and just how the subway has gotten so bad. Uh, do you want to talk a little bit about that article, Andy? Yeah, um, thank you. Uh, I, basically what I was trying to do in this article is to, one, provide a first-person account of what it's like to uh, take the New York subways, 
uh, system in this its period of crisis and decline. Um, two, to take a historical look at how the system got that way. Um, and also to offer a little bit of a different explanation than the one that you get in the mainstream newspapers, which emphasizes the corruption of the Metropolitan Transit Authority. That corruption is absolutely real. However, the explanation I'm trying to give roots it really in whether public transit, in whether the right to move around the city is or is not going to be a commodity, mm. whether this is something that's going to be accessible to everyone as a right. Um, and then finally, uh, just I was trying to ask, what can we do to get out of it? Um, what would a people's subway, a democratically controlled subway, a subway that's dedicated to being a vehicle for our aspirations, uh, what would that look like? And what would be like, I don't know, the first thing we could do to start uh, down that road? Well, I think it would be a tiered system of underground hoverboards where <laughs> people with more money can travel in style, maybe right. like with some fancy gold plating or whatever. And the people with less money, there's about like a 50-50 chance your hoverboard might explode. I think there are some journalists who agree with you that that's the future of public transit in New York. Yeah, I read it in um, Technocratic Visionary magazine. <laughs> That was a real article. I can't believe that actually exists. But yeah. they're, they're, um, Elon Musk's boring company is literally trying to do this in L.A. And they had a uh, like an event at Dodger Stadium to roll it out. Their their premier project is supposed to be like getting people to Dodger Stadium with, with these like underground tunnels with personal <sighs> transports. And it makes no sense at all. It's just like one of our most pressing social needs. Yes. I don't know. Have, have you read about this? Uh, no, not this I, in particular. I've read about the Hyperloop in general. I didn't realize that's where they were going to roll the thing out at all Dodger right. Stadium. But before we get to Elon yeah. Musk's death We're going to talk mad shit on there. Yeah. Yeah, we'll get let's, there. We'll uh, get there. Let's, let's go back. Let's go back in time a little bit. Why? What, what is your analysis for why the New York City subway sucks so much? And uh, how does that intersect with uh, the history of fucking capitalism yeah i mean the reason it sucks really goes back to the moment it was built um the subway you have to understand so when i first started when sham asked me to write this article i thought that subways had been built because like you and i need to get around the mm. city i learned in the course of my research that this was not the reason they were in fact built the subways were built not completely, but largely as a vehicle for real estate speculation. Um, and the first city subway lines were privately owned and operated. And they their um, operators had a monopoly on public transit. Also, being a director of one of these subway companies enabled you to get inside information on where public transit would be going. You can then buy up the land in, say, northern Manhattan and the Bronx very cheap. You can build housing and you can flip it and make a killing. So the subways were built in a lot of ways as an instrument of commerce and an instrument of profit. Now, they did not always stay that way. So after the First World War, uh, it became very difficult to find ways to kind of monetize the creation of new subway lines. During the Great Depression, the private companies basically collapsed and the city ended up taking over all three lines. In the meantime, too, the city had built its own publicly owned and operated subway. This is because in an effort to put the subways back on a profit-making basis, the private companies sought to desperately, repeatedly, raise the fare 
over and over mm -hmm. and over again. A situation that will probably sound familiar to contemporary New Yorkers. Yeah. Oh yeah, I'd say so. Um, but in the 1920s and 30s, there was a mayor called John Hyland, who was a Democrat, but he faced a challenge from the left. He also had been fired from one of the elevated uh, railroads in Brooklyn and bore a serious personal grudge against the transit companies. But he found out that his personal grudge made quite good politics because every other New Yorker hated the transit companies as well. And so he made, as a sort of a defining feature of his administration, attacks on the private transit companies and making what was then a five cent fare kind of like an inviolable mm. principle of the New York City subway. And then the fare stayed at five cents as inflation continued to pace. So the mm. real value of a subway fare basically went down. The subway got cheaper and cheaper and cheaper over time. Nothing I like more than a good revenge reform. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Um, and so to me, Highland's administration in the 1920s and 30s, it represents a period when political control, democratic control, however imperfect the democratic administrations in New York City were during the 1920s, which is very, um, but when political control was exercised over like a key social resource, something that we all need, and it, that was exercised in a way that makes it available to the greatest number of people. Once the subways were no longer a source of profit, they became they become a burden to the rich because they require a lot of money and they require a lot of taxes to continue operating them. And so for this reason, they become a target. Like all public shared goods in our society, they become a target of those who don't need them, but who are worried that they will be asked to contribute to their upkeep. And so what you see after the Second World War, which occurs in the context of a general sort of reactionary direction mm -hmm. in American society. I mean, in a lot of ways, 1945 was like the signal moment for a possible but still nebulous American social democracy. Mm -hmm. Over sure. the course of the late 1940s, this dream is dashed. Mm -hmm. uh, McCarthyism is sort of the shorthand that we use. Yeah, but Taft-Harley was before that. It's 47, right, when they... That's right. Legs out from the union movement. Taft-Hartley, the defeat of universal health care and a, the def in the city, the defeat of rent control and more to our point, the raising of the subway fare. So the battle over the subway fare came to a head in the late 1940s. It was uh, raised for the first time. This broke the dam. And what basically um, these anti-tax pressure groups succeeded in doing was taking the operation of the subways and putting it in the hand of what was called an authority. Mm. So this is the birth of the New York City uh, subway authority. And what that does is it takes control over the subway away from elected officials and puts it in the hands of state appointees. Yeah, not even just the city, right? The fucking state mm -hmm. is in control of the New York City subways. Well, and this is a pattern that was repeated with the city university mm. and uh, several other key social goods in the 1970s. So the removal of the operation of the thing we all need from democratic control is a consistent theme over the course of the post-war era. Yeah, if people aren't familiar with the history, and we are going to broaden this out from the subways in New York City to talk transit in general and infrastructure and movement of peoples, but I think it was, was it Joshua Freeman, the historian who called uh, New York City a unique uh, social, social democratic polity? 
there was a sort of municipal social democracy that existed for about you know 50 years or so from the 30s until the 1970s you know you had municipal hospitals right you had um, obviously the CUNY system City University of New York which I am a graduate of myself uh, which was completely free you know to all and you had the provision of all sorts of different uh, social needs that were done on a municipal level so New York City becomes in that era this sort of example of a small-scale social democratic ish experiment right that's right New York City is probably the between the 1930s and the 1970s probably the closest thing to a social democracy that has ever existed in the United States and the end of that is the New York City fiscal crisis of the mid-1970s. Part of what I was trying to do in this article is to date the fiscal crisis a little earlier mm. than we're used to doing. So the culmination of the fiscal crisis was when New York City nearly went bankrupt in 1975. You saw all kinds of cuts to public service. It gave us the kind of dystopian New York that features in films like The Warriors. Mm -hmm. I don't know if anyone's mm -hmm. ever seen this, mm -hmm. but that has been much mythologized. The Bronx is burning, right? That's right. But the thing is, it didn't get that way in just a year or two. So the fiscal crisis, in a lot of ways, it, it started earlier. The manufacturing jobs begin flooding out of New York really almost immediately after the Second World War. By the 1950s, it's a veritable flood. And as far as the subway goes... The effort to put the subway on a profit-making basis, and it's very difficult to put mass, urban mass yeah. transit on a profit-making basis. Um, or even just a self-sustaining basis, right? right? Because yeah. the subway was initially not necessarily supposed to be totally self-sustaining, right? Yeah, it almost makes you think that there are some things in life that shouldn't be governed by the market. <laughs> right. <laughs> Thank you. Well, I think I, I, I was thinking through this a little bit this morning. Uh, and it seems to me like we've hit upon one of the contradictions inherent within capitalism, right? Because there is a certain level of, you could call it social reproduction, right? There's a certain level, uh, at least as part of the New Deal compromise, where capital acknowledged that it needs workers, it, right? It needs people to be able to get to work. It was very it nice needs of them. People to be <laughs> able to, you know, afford to have children to reproduce the next generation of workers. And a lot of these, these things are in service of capital. Um, so, like, doesn't it benefit capital, at least certain sectors of it, that workers can get to work? Or maybe it doesn't matter as long as they can shift that responsibility mostly onto the workers, right? Like, our friend, our friend Wilson had a pretty good idea, which was that if companies were forced to pay workers for the time they spent commuting, mm. the subways would be fixed tomorrow. I mean, what what do you think about all that? Yeah, I mean, my sense is we're still in a phase where employers feel like they can uh, safely push that responsibility onto workers. You hear a lot about how the from mainstream journalists about how the economy is doing very well. Um, yeah. Well. That's only true if you're part of a very small group of very wealthy people who own stocks, um, who have a lot of money stashed away, etc. You don't see this in terms of wage growth. In other words, we don't see any evidence that labor markets have actually gotten a lot tighter than they have been for the dismal several decades that have preceded this. So the sense that I get from my own life, from the life of my students, and just from reading the news is that employers still hold most of the cards and it's going to be worth it it's worth a lot more to them to not have to pay high taxes than it is to um 
take affirmative steps to ensure that their workers can a get to work in a reasonable amount of time or b like don't just have miserable lives well i think this brings us from the 1970s fiscal crisis you're, you were talking about in the lead up to that uh closer to the present day right because what you saw is this uh this urban problem this urban question right that arises and is attempted to be quote-unquote fixed by the great society by johnson right in the 60s but still results in riots and then of course the warriors uh new york city of the 70s 80s and uh early 90s right um you saw a massive disinvestment of capital and um from the city uh during the period of let's say you know 1968 all the way up until maybe the 19 early 1990s but then, of course, now the city that we live in now, and this, is, won't, this will be familiar also to people in San Francisco, people in Austin, people in Portland, certainly people in London, right, is that um, not just capital, but also high wealth individuals started to come back into the city. So a lot of what we talk about when we talk about this commuting time, right, is the fact that in recent eras in the recent era the last 20 years or so, the city core has become this site of privilege, this site that takes a massive amount of income in order to live in, let alone thrive in. And with the exception of public housing, which is falling apart in this city, uh, again, for the same reasons why the subway is, because the rich just don't give a fuck. Um, commute times and this whole subway issue and um, congestion, everything is also a product of people not being able to live in the city core any longer, right? They have to move farther and farther out. I'm in the building trades and I, I work with guys some women but mostly guys who live two and a half hours away in pennsylvania so that they can have a yard right that they can have quote-unquote good schools for their kids and you see the situation is completely dependent upon this um fire sector in new york city right where real estate finance insurance is so powerful and so dominant that normal working class people here and in other cities they cannot afford to live without a two-hour commute that you're not paid for, as she mentioned. Yeah, and that contributes greatly to climate change, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that New York City, it had a crisis in the 1970s. At the same time, New York City, like, it's not Pittsburgh. It's not Youngstown, Ohio. It's not Detroit. New York City, because of its unique history, has been reborn. Mm -hmm. as a privileged site for capital accumulation. I mean, New York City is a center for media. It's a center for advertising. It's a center for finance. And it is a center for real estate speculation. So as you're in the building trades, I'm sure yes. you're aware. Many of these, these... Thank you, speculation, for my pension and annuity. Yeah, these apartments are not being built for you and me. They're no. being built for people who frequently don't even live there a large portion of the time. So I think this discussion is really fascinating and a lot of it's obviously New York centric because your article was about those experiences of New York people and the history of the New York City subway. But I think that there is at the heart of your piece and I think a heart of a lot of a lot of the literature around this, a real critique of capital and capitalism. Um, Marx himself actually um, was thinking about these things. There's a uh, text he wrote, a manuscript called the Grundrisse, which was his uh, preparatory notes for writing uh, Capital, all six proposed volumes, was it, or seven? And uh, it deals directly with what we're talking about here, about uh, circulation and movement. So this is from uh, Marx's Grundrisse. While Capital must, on the one side, strive to tear down 
every spatial barrier to intercourse, i.e. to exchange, and conquer the whole world for its market. It strives on the other side to annihilate this space with time, i.e. to reduce to a minimum the time spent in motion from one place to another. The more developed the capital, therefore, the more extensive the market over which it circulates, which forms the spatial orbit of its circulation, and more does it strive for an even greater extension of the market and for greater annihilation of space by time. Mm. Now, that quote isn't great just because it's like metaphysical as fuck to like annihilate space by time. It's also metal as fuck, it's right? It's the most bong it's, rip <laughs> marks. It's the total fucking bong rip marks. Uh, but it's also when you think about circulation and what he's talking about here, this annihilation of space by time, what is circulating when you're talking about people commuting? It is a commodity. It is the commodity labor power. So Jamie mentioned social reproduction before, and we've talked about commute times, right? But we ourselves under capitalism are not commodities, but we have a commodity to sell, which is our labor power. So it is actually of great interest and importance to capital and the state that that commodity makes it from where it lives you know to the actual site work site itself so subways in a sense right and if you were looking at this you know in the in this social democratic type era right are essentially a subsidy by the state on capital because it's essentially making the circulation of uh, labor power you know, less expensive, right? It's actually like increasing people's ability to move around. Um, that's always going to be an issue, right? People have to get from one space to another. But do you want to talk about kind of like the larger implications for, you know, th these conceptions of uh, transit and, and what you saw in New York and how that kind of pertains to other parts of the country and the world? Yeah, I mean, well, I think what that quotation from Marx is about is what capital does with space. Yes. Um, and I think like what I was trying to get at in this article is whether urban space is going to be space that is dedicated to the needs of capital or whether it's going to be dedicated to the needs of people. So what that quote expresses is that capital connects us in a lot of ways. But it connects us in bad ways, right? <laughs> in ways that are alienating, in ways that are antagonistic, in ways that are inhuman in Wait, some ways. You don't like having all your human relationships mediated by the market. <laughs> it makes me feel bad. <laughs> and, us, yeah, and, us and, too. And empty, One might even empty say sometimes. Alienated. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, we yeah. started a podcast because the whole thing makes us feel bad all the time. We just want to talk about it. Um, yeah, why like like in your story when like the the one uh, man yells at the other woman and there's a fight on the subway? Why are those people stuck in a moving metal box underground, right? At the same time, why are the subways so crowded at these particular times? Part of it is people have work schedules. There's rush hour. Like that's something we take for granted, right? But that is like all these people with separate lives, you know, uh, doing separate things, but all crammed into one space so that they can perform the labor they have to in order to accumulate capital. Mm -hmm. They have no control over when they get there and under what conditions. And I think what we need to emphasize is that attacks on public services are attacks on the most vulnerable people in our cities. Um, on people whose race, class, and gender makes them among the least able to, to bear these attacks. Well, one thing I was going to bring up about the subway that I think is interesting, and I'm probably skipping ahead a little bit to our direct action section, but... Um, the solution. 
it really <laughs> seems like a place where it, it, it's a very good representation of the 99%. Because at least in New York, pretty much everyone but the super rich uses the subways. Um, and you have never felt the kind of collective palpable rage that you feel when you're on a crowded platform at rush hour and the train's fucked up and everyone just wants to get home, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't think I've ever felt that kind of collective rage outside of like a political demonstration before besides, you know, that particular situation. So it seems like a really good place, a really good confluence for the 99% to like maybe get involved in some sort of action. Um, like, do you see the subway as a potential pressure point for funneling all these regular angry New Yorkers into some sort of radical action, especially considering we know it doesn't work to vote about this, right? Like, fucking Cynthia, Cynthia Nixon ran on fixing the subways and she did not even win New York City. She lost by a lot. So, like, yeah, what's left? And I would just add one thing before I pass it to you, Andy, is that part of that rage that Jamie is describing is uh, the feeling of powerlessness, right? Because that's ultimately what we are in those moments in time. We have no power to control our ability to move, right? Yeah. And um, I think that kind of powerlessness is sort of what defines our proletarian condition in some ways. Um, I tried to describe in the article that kind of atmosphere that Jamie is referring to, just that kind of like where you're in a large group of people and people are becoming increasingly frustrated. The situation feels sort of increasingly out of anyone's control and you're like worried that it could and sometimes does spill over into violence. And I also tried to communicate how frustrating that can be for those of us who are trying to think of ways that one, we will not treat each other that way and we will just treat the people who are oppressing us that way mm. instead. Um, and also like to begin to think about a way out of this, there is not an immediate or a clear way out of this right now. And especially not through, I think the electoral channels that a lot of people imagine the, I think the, the, long fiscal crisis that I'm talking about is in some ways out of the control of any one politician, even friendly ones. Um, and so what I proposed in the article at least is like less a concrete prescription for what a movement to reclaim the subway looks like than a set of principles that I think it's going to have to observe. And I think when the electoral route is foreclosed to us, and this is where we should keep the lessons of the fiscal crisis in mind, because as Sean was saying, New York City had a set of electoral officials that was probably friendlier to working people at mid-century than any place in American history. Um, they could not forestall the fiscal crisis. That was a structural issue with yes. American cities and with capitalism. Yes. Um, so I think what, look, as long as they keep raising the fare, as long as we keep paying it, the message is clear enough. It's that we accept or feel that we have no choice to accept what's going on. I think the longer we do that, the more cut off from ourselves we become because the people who can afford to pay those higher fares are people who are relatively whiter, richer, more privileged. Um, so my suggestion at least is to begin to become less alienated. 
Ooh. to begin good to, idea <laughs> to talk to one another ah. to talk to your friends to talk to your loved ones talk to your fellow riders talk to the people in your apartment building. i do that sometimes talk to transit workers no one understands how the subway system runs better than the people who actually run it that's right Shout out to TWU, Local 100. Mike Quill, good communist, <laughs> helped found it. Until he wasn't. Until it's not anymore. But. So this article and, and your article about Janice that you wrote with Jared Shanahan for Jacobin both kind of point to the how, how these things are breaking down and as a result of that, potentially becoming new terrains of struggle. Uh, for Janice, you know, you, you might see more wildcat strikes or different forms of labor organization. And then in terms of the subway, you imagine it transforming from this place where people are just miserably crammed together like sardines into a new public sphere where people of all walks of life intersect and imagining that that rage that uh, is boiling in the New York City subways, especially when it's very hot, um, becoming something politically useful. Uh, I just wonder if there's some, this is like getting into uh, breakdown theory or like the the idea that crisis will produce um, something positive instead of just having everyone at their throats. Yeah, I don't insist that it's inevitable. I mean, I don't think there's really too much evidence from my own life to suggest that the decay of public institutions inevitably leads to like organic reformations of solidarity at the same time. And I think this is part of what the magazine as a whole is trying to emphasize. Like Sean was saying, we are in the midst of a sequence of popular struggles that are rooted in direct action, beginning with the Arab Spring in the United States, the Occupy Movement, Black Lives Matter, and a host of other struggles across the world in a way. These struggles are rooted in direct action and they are responses to the crises in capitalism and to the decay of the institutions that were rooted in this particular era of capitalism. So it's, I don't insist that it's inevitable, but I also don't insist it's impossible. What but, would you say to the people who think, oh, if you want to fix the subways, you just have to vote for the right people. And if enough people vote for the right people who want to raise taxes on the rich and fix the subways, that's how we get it done. And if you don't vote for the right people, no amount of direct action will convince them to fix it. Can I use a real world example of that? Sure. Those are the best kind. Yeah. Um, do people remember Barack Obama? Anybody? He, was a, he, was, he rings a bell. He was a president. Uh, he was born in America, for sure, and is, uh, was not a Muslim. He, um, one of the things that he did in his uh, bailout plan, remember with that fiscal crisis that he voted on and then you know, presided over another one, was uh, an idea of creating a high-speed rail network in the United States. They were going to put tens of billions of dollars into this because it was addressing these sorts of issues of infrastructure uh, and also modernization that forward-thinking bourgeois politicians and even sectors of capital realize are necessary for increased accumulation. So Obama basically says, we're going to throw a bunch of money at the states and we're going to create high-speed rail, which is something that China has, Japan has, France has, Europe has in general, right? And I was hyped on it. I love trains. I'm like an eight-year-old with that shit. Uh, what happened to that plan? Why don't we have high-speed rails from, say, like New York to D.C., but then also to Richmond and then also down all the way to Florida? Why does the Midwest have a high-speed rail system, right, where people can just you know move quickly from one city to another? 
the reason is not just the kind of fractured uh, way that American politics works with states and the federal government, right? It's that there is a real aversion to these collective forms of movement. You know, they're not controlled by us, but they are a collective experience, right? There is this obsession with the car culture, right? There's this obsession with uh, the independence that that brings. And so in three different states, this Obama proposal and the money that they want to give them was shut down. John Kasich in uh, Ohio, Scott Walker in Wisconsin, and Rick Scott in Florida said, we don't want free money from the federal government for uh, high-speed public rail because we don't want it. All right. We don't want it. Now, when you fast forward to today, right, there is a company in Florida called Brightline. OK, this was going to be there was going to be a high speed rail network in Florida funded by the government uh, public running from Orlando down to Miami. Um, Brightline is now a company that's been given tons of tax abatements by the state of Florida. It's a private alternative. They've just received $1.8 billion in tax-exempt bonds from Florida because they are a private company trying to do mass transit, running at a $25 million loss per quarter trying to do this in the private sphere. And this is the kicker to the whole thing, and it ties it together, is Brightline is two things. There's two wings to this company. One is mass high-speed private transit, and the other is, ding, 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 real estate. Hmm. They invest, they construct, they build, and they sell condominiums around all the stops that they have along this Florida corridor that they're putting the trains in. So they can even lose money on the train as long as they're making money off of real estate. So in a sense, what was once this sort of, as you said, a kind of implicit uh, capitalist enterprise of making money off of the real estate speculation around infrastructure and transit has now in this late, late, late stage of capitalism become one company, right? So the takeaway from that is not just that, you know, capital is now um, smart enough to take both ends, you know, within one enterprise, right? But that the election of a quote-unquote progressive like Barack Obama in the United States of America running partially on this platform of modernizing our infrastructure, right? And Trump said the same thing. Electorally, we saw none of that. We saw nothing. You could blame it on recalcitrant uh, Republicans, right? But it's part of a trend that you've outlined and we've seen for the last, you know, 60 years, right, of not caring about public transportation. So this electoral conception, like you just get an Obama in office and you're somehow going to, you know, ameliorate some of these problems. I think that's a real world example of how, you know, there's so much standing in the, in the way of that. Yeah. And to me, I always go back to the New York City fiscal crisis, which is an episode that in some ways gave us the model of the austerity regimes under which we all uh, labor and suffer today. That and Pinochet. Yeah. And I think that the New York City fiscal crisis is a lesson in terms of in a capitalist society. There are limits on the ability of any one politician, no matter how well intentioned, to buck what the people who have money and power want. Um, capital is mobile. It doesn't have to stay in New York City. It stays in New York City right now because that's the place where it can achieve the highest return. We should not think for one minute that this is natural or eternal. It hasn't been natural or eternal. It left. It came back. It can leave again. And if you do something that they don't like, like begin to tax them to the point where they can achieve a higher rate of return elsewhere, that capital will go elsewhere. In a capitalist society, people like us are dependent on people who have capital. 
I mean, that's one of the sort of structuring features of the society that we live in. And this is the kind of relationship that I think our movements have to aim at breaking. Definitely. We're getting some real examples of uh, struggles against fare hikes and decreased uh, transit and such. Oh, yeah. Well, I'd like to kick this segment off by uh, just giving a little shout out to a group of, uh, I don't know if they're left comms or maybe they're anarchists. Um, it, it, it has some structure in that there is formal membership in this group. Um, they seem to take inspiration from a kind of vulgar situationism. And their praxis is to ride the subway all at once. And at the appointed time, they all take their pants off. And oh, that yeah. creates a sense of whimsy in the commuting people. And, and somehow, somehow through there, um, the people will rise up and reclaim what is theirs. That, that's a more roundabout way than I had imagined. What she is referring to is the no pants subway ride, which is the most obnoxious thing that happens, one of the most obnoxious things that happens in New York City every year when a bunch of yuppies go fucking in their underwear on the subway. Do you think that's good praxis you don't you don't do you think it. culture should be jammed <laughs> <laughs> i'm choking up guys. <laughs> the skepticism is oozing out of me <laughs> uh there's also the other um the other pra uh, practical activity of the class which is once a year uh dressing up in uh red garments uh and funny hats and uh beards and puking all over the subways that's another form of direct action santa con i think it's Is called it, yeah maybe we can just plague the city with these horrible puking Santas until something is done about this. Well, we, need we need better ideas, Andy. Help or no, us. No, we're going to send SantaCon to fucking <laughs> Albany, okay? We're going to send SantaCon to Albany and see how they like it. We could hex the MTA. <laughs> oh, mm. There is that talking. haunted subway car now. Uh, oh, what? Yeah. I saw the movie Ghost when they try to move the quarter, Patrick Swayze. Yeah, with the pottery thing. Yeah, the, exactly. Well, let's ghost this subject matter right now and go back to... We'll have a whole episode on okay. the movie Ghost. Uh, <laughs> so, like, in, in other cities, for example, people can just kind of go on the subway without paying, and you have to, like, avoid a controller, and there's, like, mutual aid networks mm -hmm. where you can help other people pay tickets. Mm -hmm. um, and then sometimes there's, like, these large riders unions or just like movements of commuters like in brazil i know that a transit fare hike was the precipitating event for a series of protests against not only transit fare hikes but the corruption of the brazilian state and the increasing cost of living in general a situation that i think we could see being replicated in new york city but i think that also <laughs> these kinds of networks do exist in a place like New York City, there are kind of ad hoc rider support networks, which I described sort of vaguely in the article, where if you have an unlimited card, in other words, a monthly subway pass, like at, at least at my station, it is expected that you will use it to swipe in people who can't afford. And if you don't, you're like being a jerk, basically. Yeah, in some stations you can do it. In some stations, like everyone will just ignore you. It would be very interesting Manhattan, to map out yeah. which stations, where, and who uses them. Uh -huh. But definitely like the J train in Brooklyn, like it's it's pretty reliable. You can get yeah. on the subway that way. I, I love that, that kind of small bit of mutual aid there. And there should be social shaming for people who have an unlimited card that don't let folks in who don't have the money but the, they've made it very illegal illegal they've busted a lot of people for that now you can't swipe somebody in I you know, know you, can't... You, you can swipe people in you can 
No, you. It's can't. absolutely legal. My belief no, you, was that it's uh, somehow legal. It's absolutely legal. You I can do whatever you want. You paid for it. You can do whatever you want with it. You can't oh. sell a swipe. That's what's super illegal. Oh, uh, okay. And there's this thing that you can do. could, like, bend the card and get a free ride, and that's really <laughs> illegal. Oh, oh yeah. The, the, the streetwise children that I used to teach uh, SAT prep to taught me that trick. I haven't jumped a subway turnstile in, like, 25 years. I should try it again just for shits. Except that there's always cops hiding behind, like, a fucking pillar who will jump out and bust well, you. Well, this is a big shit. problem, and, of course, the it's uh, targeting the poorest and most vulnerable people in our city exactly. who are just trying to ride the damn subway. I also have a method to get on the subway um, for free. It works about like four out of five times and it's totally, it's mostly legal, uh, but I can't say it on air. So <laughs> if you're in our discord community, uh, DM me there. <laughs> Life hacks with Andy. Um, <laughs> is, are there, so, should we talk about examples of like uh, struggles against the the MTA or fare hikes in New York over the last few years? Yeah, what are some inspiring examples of direct action, and what are some ideas of what folks could do in the future? I think there have been the germs of direct action, um, at least in the last couple of years. I remember one effort that sort of you know occurred in the aftermath of the occupy wall street movement to provide subway access for free to ordinary people by chanting open the gates um this was kind of a it was ended up being kind of a one-shot deal but i think the principle behind it is the same thing that we're talking about um if that kind of thing could be organized could be formalized could be made explicit if the risks associated with it could be made less for any one participant then i feel like that is the kind that would be a way to refuse what the mta what the state and what the politicians are insisting that we accept because like i said as long as we keep paying no amount of grumbling on Twitter is going to affect what the governor or what the state legislature does. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to the importance of building a critical mass of support for this kind of stuff, right? Because, Absolutely. you know, maybe a number of years ago, the only people willing to do this kind of action were, you know, some crazy Occupy people or whatever. And maybe now it's like it's gotten to a point where things are so bad, like someone's going to die soon in the subway. If this keeps up, no, things have gotten all the time. On the subway. Things have. Yeah. Pe more people are going to die. Things have gotten so bad that I think maybe the time is ripe for regular ass people to do the same thing. Hold the doors open for a day. Yeah. Do it until the MTA does something and you can't arrest every single person in New York City. Right. You'll get from the right-wing media a, an attack on the working people, the union members uh, that are working, you know, down there to make Yo, sure that... Even Cynthia Nixon said that they need to make sacrifices, right? Yes. The transit worker union members are not the problem here, right? They, in many senses, are just as powerless as we are. So anytime you read an article that says that the um the inflated wages of the workers whether those are the workers who work for the mta or people like myself who often work on jobs that are related to the subway right that is not the primary issue it is 
the corruption, which is part of it, but a lot, but most of it is actually, as I think Andy points out and uh, describes great in the article, the fact that the powers that be just do not give a fuck because there's no profit in it and there's no interest in taxing people in order to make it better. Yeah, I've never understood the argument that because someone works on the subway, they should be paid nothing and have a miserable life. I don't. That doesn't make any sense. No, it's, they need it's, to make sacrifices. Okay, they're getting more than everyone else. It's perfect because it's one of the last uh, unionized sectors, you know, in in New York City and uh, across the country in the United States, and uh, it's just a furthering of the assault on workers. If something's fucked up, you blame the people that, as you pointed out again in your article, you know, folks see transit workers, you know, all the time. And often yell at them because they're the face. They become the face of all the issues, you know, that exist at that moment in time. You know, the conductor who's just doing their job, right? But they don't, you know, have any answers for you. People start to yell at them, right? That conductor did not make the decisions on, you know, acquiring a new signal system, right? They did not make the decision on whether to do garbage removal, you know, (laughs) before a track fire started, right? Yeah, and I mean, I think that this brings me to two points one is that you know public sector unions have a choice to make in today's era over whether and this is why i think that rank and file movements within public sector unions are so important because the leadership of the transit workers union i'm talking about the top leadership has made a choice to ally with the governor and to make deals with the governor, to erect what is in effect a kind of private agreement with the governor. But this is not in the interest necessarily of the majority of New Yorkers or even of the majority of transit workers. And so I think public sector unions, they have to make a decision as to whether they are going to look out for particular private interests or whether they are going to be vehicles of activism and democratization for the whole society. And two, I just wanted to emphasize, as far as direct action goes, in order for it to work, it cannot be minoritarian. I mean, it has to start that way, maybe, Mm. but it has to be broad-based, it has to be mass, and it has to be generalized in order for it to work. Now, direct action always has risks. If it didn't have risks, it wouldn't be effective. But what we need to do is to find ways of political organizing that reduce the risks for any one person. And one way to do that is to get as many people on board as possible. And I don't think you can necessarily predict like what's the one person's action that's going to set off that kind of spark, but it is an imperative for it to work. Here's a question on that note about building a critical mass of support. Um, I was thinking about this uh, in relation to the massive waves of teacher strikes that have happened recently around the country. And I was struck by the degree to which everyone in the community was really on board with this. They made the connection. You know, the teachers aren't just greedy and striking for themselves. They're striking for the students. And that's a connection I haven't really seen yet in action around the subways and public transit, right? Like I've seen, you know, the transit workers go on strike and people complain, oh, people are going to get fired. People can't get to work. Like, I don't have the privilege to support this. Like, what's it going to take for everyone to understand that this is in everyone's best interest and connect up the interests of different kinds of workers with each other? 
I think it can be harder in a city like New York than in a place like West Virginia, where it is very obvious to the parents of school children the role that elementary school teachers play in their children's lives, who are often like secondary caregivers. The schools are responsible for feeding a lot of children in places like that. In a gigantic, sort of alienated and alienating city like New York, yeah, the task is harder, which is why, look, I'm not able to offer a program that I can guarantee will um, get us out of this mess. You're not? <laughs> get Damn the it. fuck out. That's not why I came on this show, Jamie. Cancel the show. Cancel the episode. It's all over. <laughs> Cancel <laughs> Commune Magazine. <laughs> but I John did. has the program, probably. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah I'm going to save it for the paywalled section. <laughs> you wait for the editorial. <laughs> um, but I did try to suggest what I think the, the rudiments and principles of any direct action campaign would have to be. And it's kind of part of what we've talked about today. It's about overcoming that alienation and about um, making politics, making activism as broad-based as it can possibly be and about communicating and about convincing one another that our interests are shared. And just one quick anecdote, too. In the late 70s, when the transit workers went on strike, uh, Ed Koch famously went uh, over to the Brooklyn Bridge and walked with the people who were stranded and couldn't get to work. And uh, with basically a scab move, he was saying, like, oh, you know, fuck these transit workers. They're on strike. I'm with the people, blah, blah, blah. In the 70s, there was still a very large labor movement, and a lot of folks in other unions in New York City, you know, or with family members in them, supported the strike. But uh, that's because you had a massive, relatively left uh, union movement in the United States. So all of our efforts that we're talking about now, you know, are made much more possible when all sorts of different elements in parts of uh, society are radicalized and are in motion, right? Because that gives us so much more room to just move and experiment and hopefully succeed, you know, in, in smaller and bigger struggles. And I think in this day and age, we're really feeling the absence of that left tradition. And that's why even though my politics might be slightly to the left of this, I do not in any way denigrate the achievements of social democratic New York, because that culture and that basis for action um, is what we need to be building on and i think we feel the absence of it very keenly yeah just even the idea that we have we deserve things right like it's it, a hard sell sometimes yeah yeah like anything and literally i'll take anything right now that will empower people to think they deserve certain things or dare we say have certain rights and that if those things aren't being honored they need to do stuff to take them I think what you're saying used to be common sense and we've lost that. And just to put a more general kind of point on it too, our vision of the future should include the ability of people to move in the way that they want to move, to travel where they want to travel, regardless of whether, you know, it's in the, uh, it's in the prerogatives of capital, whether it's in the prerogative of the, of the state 
or even across borders because a, a whole other part of this whole you know movement of people's thing too is that the capitalist state sets up all these borders where um you know all of a sudden you reach a invisible line uh somewhere and you can't go there and as internationalists too we always need to remember that something small that happens in new york city or in sao paulo right uh, but grows ultimately needs to grow into a movement of people that can uh, expand, you know, even beyond those arbitrary borders of the nation state. That's why everybody should get a bike and ride and get a cool back patch and a <laughs> fanny pack. And, you know, maybe become a train hopping crusty for yeah. a while. Yeah. Parasitic <laughs> travel, that's direct action, Look, no? When the struggle gets big, make sure you fall back into a subculture. Because mm -hmm. that's what we need the left mm -hmm. to be, is a subculture. Well, one way... <laughs> I, I mean, we're always talking about how to, like, sell things to people, right? And I think an easier sell than parasitically hopping on trains in a way that might get you killed and, you know, maybe smelling bad and wearing a bunch of ass flaps is, um, I think Sean and I really... Sean and I really... Um, we really lived our champagne socialist <laughs> principles when we were traveling around Europe six or seven yeah, years ago. we sure did. We had uh, friends um, who shall not be named who had connections to uh, railroad passes, Eurorail passes, that are uh, printed out on a printer with some special paper. And they're very expensive normally. Yeah, like, like hundreds of Like, you think Europe has socialism? Uh, no. No. We managed to get counterfeit uh, Eurorail passes. Uh, we were very poor then. We're less poor now, but... Boy, really. did we, boy, did we use them, though. <laughs> Tell a story. It's, it's really good. Oh, man. I mean, there, there, there were times when we had to, like, sit in a crowded car with a bunch of people. There were times when we got somehow upgraded to a private room <laughs> where not only were we able to have, like, a little picnic with wine and snacks, but actually made one of our great sexual fantasies <laughs> come true. I love trains, and I love sex, and I love Jamie, and they all came together somewhere between Innsbruck, Austria, and, uh, I don't know, the border of uh, Italy. So I'm not telling the story to gross out Andy because I know he's thinking about cutting it out right now. You're grossing out Randy. <laughs> my bad, my and bad. And Sham's still here and he's like, oh my God. Andy's Back fine. imagining the, uh, the Italian controller going, mamma mia. <laughs> Maron. No, I'm telling it to provide an alternate vision yes. for radical, yes. illegal, direct action activity <laughs> that is also really fun and special. Yeah, like having sex on a train, a high-speed train. It's like exactly. evasion too. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, what? There, there's a book about like train hopping and hitchhiking and stuff. <laughs> we want luxury uh, train hopping. That's yeah. the idea, right? Yeah. It's not enough, you know. We did our little illegalism, and uh, I have, I don't give a shit, you know. No, I'm, I'm not saying it to gross people out. I'm <laughs> saying it to inspire people to maybe do the same praxis, <laughs> maybe tell their friends to do the same praxis, and before long. You know, everybody will bring about the revolution by eating snacks and having sex on a train. Yeah, we need to get to a place where that kind of activity is not the province of a small group of champagne socialists, <laughs> but is available to all. If I can't fuck on a train in your revolution, I don't want any part of it. 
way more subversive. Listen, folks, we rely on your support. Uh, you can go to www.patreon.com slash theantifada and become a patron today. We've got lots of wonderful premium content. We have a Discord community. We're going to be unpacking more and more goodies as time goes on. And I believe we're going to be continuing a bit of this conversation behind that dreaded border wall of the payroll. Hell yeah. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs>